Sorry, Jim. This is for Rocky. Hey, Rock, Stan. Got that redhead and his sister. 10.30 Macy's Grill. <laughs> Welcome to 200 a Day, the podcast where we talk about the 70s television detective, the 70s television detective show, The Rockford Files. I'm Nathan Paletta. And I'm Epidiah Ravishaw. And uh, we continue our quest to finish season two with season two, episode 17, Joey Blue Eyes. This is our uh, Zeno's quest. Yes. Every time we get closer to the end of season two, there's another episode. (laughs) Yes, this is a uh, uh, correction to the end of our last episode where I said we have one more episode to do. When we did our our behind-the-scenes rundown of the remaining episodes in Season 2, because of a similarity in title, I had missed that we had not yet done uh, Episode 7, The Real Easy Red Dog, as in my mind, the episode that we did, Tall Woman in Red Wagon, occupied that mental slot. So, this now is our second-to-last episode yes. to do of Season 2, which we'll be finishing in our next episode when we finally take on the real easy red dog, thus finishing season two of the Rockford Files. Yay! We regret the error. Yeah. For everyone who I'm sure was was yelling at their yelling at their podcast device about how how yes. wrong we were. So I I envision this person having like hash marks on the wall behind them as they mm-hmm. like one for each season has its own line of hash marks. And they're like, you didn't. You didn't as they point to the wall. So, yes, now that we have uh, uh, explored one of our many, many failings, we can move on to talk about this episode, which is a pretty, a pretty, pretty good one. This one really stood out to me, actually. Yeah, this, this is a, uh, a lot of fun. For a couple of reasons, which we'll get into. Um, yes, as we said, um, Joey Blue Eyes uh, in the back half of season two, directed by Lawrence Doney. I feel like uh, I'll have to really track down some interesting things to say about about him other than he directed a lot of episodes of The Rockford Files whenever yeah. <laughs> we get through the rest of his. But this one in particular had some really... I, I felt like some of the visual staging was very, like, I'm just going to have fun with this one in this yeah. episode. Um, in a couple scenes in particular, which is always nice. I don't know how much the director gets... Uh, credit for this but there there were also a lot of good glances and looks going on mm-hmm. in this particularly between Jim and Beth but like uh, it was it was a good episode for it was a bad episode for looking down at your notes mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is what I'm saying yeah there's also a lot of good status reflected oh, yeah. by uh, blocking in yeah. this one as well. So a lot of our highlights. Plus, as you say, Beth and Angel. So oh, Angel, yes, yes, yeah. It's uh, which I had completely forgotten about um, that he was in this episode. So always a pleasure. Um, but yeah, speaking of who's in this episode, uh, the writer for this one is Walter Dallenbach. Uh, I assume that is how you pronounce the last name. Um, so he wrote two Rockford Files scripts. This is the first. Uh, we have not done the, the other one he did yet. And uh, he has a, a, a number of credits um, of TV of the era and and uh, some TV movies, etc. cetera, uh, on the old IMDb. But uh, what I ended up finding as the most interesting stuff about him was from, unfortunately, his obituary. Oh. Uh, he passed away in February of 2014. Um, but, uh, he sounds like a really interesting guy. So I'm not going to, I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, it is written in a very, uh, kind of lighthearted style. And, um, 
go through many specific things that he did. Before he got into screenwriting, he was apparently an economics uh, professor for a while, then was in public relations, which led to being the Southern California press secretary for Eugene McCarthy's 68 presidential campaign. <laughs> All right, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm actually at this point surprised he hasn't written more Rockford Files episodes. I all of this sounds like good grist for the mill. Yeah, this is this is this is just picking up kind of in the middle of this uh, long long uh, exploration of various interesting sounding career moves. Um, he did another press secretary gig for a congressional campaign, and then the magical wonder of writing for movies and television was getting more and more vivid. And in a clever and succinct move, he accepted an offer at Paragon Films in Hollywood, where from 1970 to 1973, he would condense and write the movie trailers for over 30 feature motion pictures. Wow. And I feel like that must be an interesting gig. That actually, yeah, that would be a very fun gig, actually. Well, I, I guess it depends. Like, that's a fun thing to do for movies that you enjoy. Mm -hmm. It's probably, well, it's probably an interesting challenge to tackle, even if you don't enjoy it. What years? So that was 70 to 73. Oh, all right. I guess for Paragon Films, which I don't know where Paragon fits in the yeah in the movie landscape of the early 70s. But this is so these are the film trailers that uh like there's eras of film trailers mm -hmm. like currently we're in the uh specific scenes that state the 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 danger that's going to be in the movie and then like some remake or just an old nostalgic tune mm -hmm. and then it, like slow down and put in a minor key yeah yeah uh and then the bombs mm -hmm. uh, but like we used to have the in the world but like yeah. the 70s was it was really interesting because those were the ones that had like this narrator come over and just tell you <laughs> everything <laughs> like uh, i i wish i could just do it all. I'm not. I'm not a mimic, so I can't do them all. But like, look up some '70s trailers because they are they're interesting in how they feel over-explainy to us. Yeah, now they, I think, or they they're like they make a case. It's as if they're tr like this narrator is actually trying to tell you. Like, all trailers are making a case for it, but like rather than it, not like a uh, it doesn't feel so much like an ad and so more like a pitch to the audience. Sure, sure. Um, so yeah. And then in 73, uh, he sold a script for Adam 12 and then was on his way into, uh, network television. So there's a list of credits, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then starting in the nineties and for 20 years, he taught screenwriting at Santa Barbara city college and the Santa Barbara writers conference. And I found uh -huh. a couple other little things where people mentioned how, great it was to get into his screenwriting course like that was apparently a oh, thing i don't know neat. how accurate that is this is from a couple things i found on someone's blog on the internet but yeah so um just the credits on imdb it's kind of like oh he did some shows but uh based on this obituary it sounds like he led a full and interesting life and then ended up influencing perhaps a number of screenwriters um, uh, with his with his craft. So, and based solely on this episode, I would say probably a good guy to get some to get some yeah. tips from. I feel like there's some good <laughs> some good uh, chops on display in this episode. I would definitely uh, sit through a semester of, of from the person that made this that wrote this. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly what you said. <laughs> <laughs> the reason people tune into our show is to hear the uh, hear all of our disagreement and everything that comes out of our arguing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so yeah, I'll uh, I'll try to remember to put that to put this link in the show notes. But uh, I like to feel like I've learned something, and I felt like I learned something. So yeah, the more you know. <laughs> But yeah, that all said, uh, I feel like perhaps we learn a couple fun things from our preview montage. Yeah. What I got out of this montage, well, first of all, Angel, anytime I see Angel, I'm like, yeah. And then the phrase con to con. Mm -hmm. And I, in the montage, misinterpret that uh, in a way that did preview that we were going to have a a con running. But he was talking about convict to convict. Mm. Uh, lots of language in the opening montage that made it sound like people were going to get whacked. Yeah. Like there was going to be a lot of murder. Uh, and then this great quote from Rockford that it's, uh, I'm a spur of the moment kind of guy. I don't wait in alleys. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, of course, the big feature here is that we're going to be seeing the first uh, appearance of James Luisi on the show. Oh, yes. But not as Lieutenant Chapman. His first role here is as... Um, so I assumed, again, based on my half, you know, my, my vague memory of this episode and on the preview montage, I was like, oh, he's like the main mob guy. Yeah, actually, the montage is a little... It, it gives you a little head fake, I think. Yeah, yeah, because I was thinking the same thing. There's definitely, having watched the montage and then watched the episode, which I didn't remember that much of, uh, I... I was expecting one thing, got another. It's perfect. That's not a complaint at all. Uh, I was pleasantly surprised by all the different things that were happening. And uh, there was, I just had this thing, I think, coming out of the montage where I didn't know who who or what. Like by the end, uh, because he's not the mob. Bert Stryker is actually just a ruthless businessman. Yeah, he's just, I mean, just. Yeah, he's in some kind of vaguely defined business. He's like a lawyer or something. And there's a big deal that he has some unsavory means to make happen. But it's not, nothing, it has nothing to do with organized crime. Right. I think that's it. Like, every moment of that preview montage made me think that everyone was the mob. Right. Right. Joey... Blue Eyes himself does not. He he puts off a Rockford Files mob vibe. Well, because and he's ex mob. Yeah, he's ex mob. But it turns out like the only hoodlums are they are organized crime, but they're just uh, loan sharks. Anyways, so it was kind of interesting to watch it all kind of fall into a, a pattern that I didn't expect, right? Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. Uh, but a very Rockford Files crime. Yes. This is an incredibly Rockford Files crime. <laughs> this this episode exudes Rockfordishness. Yes, it does. <laughs> as soon as I finished it, I was like, this might be a, I mean, not to spoil my takeaway, but like, this might be a like top episode list entry. <laughs> yeah. Also, before we get into all of it, just to put it contextually, this aired after uh, Portrait of Elizabeth. It was the next episode. Which actually kind of feels about right based on what we see of Jim and Beth, their whole thing, yes. in this episode. That That's what I was going to say. Like, this is a very good Jim and Beth and their thing episode. I just, I was just trying to envision having watched Portrait of Elizabeth and then came back and watched this episode and just the high you would be on in the <laughs> 70s thinking... I have found the greatest television. Well, <laughs> it's just they're both really good and they're both like, yeah. 
Absolutely. Uh, before we get into it, just one content uh, note, content warning. The episode does start with some off-camera... I guess it's not domestic abuse, but it is uh, fairly yeah. fairly brutally staged beating up of a woman. Yeah. Um, it is quick, and she's okay, but yeah. we will... You know, talk about it a little bit. And then again, before we get into it, I do want to call out another good phone call gag, specifically along the lines of continuing to explore the secret life of Rocky. Yes, because this would also be in the same season, but later uh, from Gear Jammers. Right. And before was Houston, which we just talked about. And also, you know, we talked about the secret life of Rocky in that episode a little bit where he he seems (laughs) to have this whole life that Jim has no awareness of. And in this case, it is a buddy of his setting him up on a double date, apparently. Yes. Uh, Unfortunately, no Rocky in this episode, but I appreciate the nod to the his secret, his secret life. All right. So all of that said, it's time to get into it. (laughs) Hello, listeners. This is a quick break before we get into the episode to say thank you to our patrons over at patreon.com slash 200 a day. This show is free to all, but the financial support from patrons really means a lot to us. And we extend a special thanks to our gumshoes. This time, we say thank you to Chuck from whatyoureading.com, Paul Townend, who also recommends the podcast Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color at fruitloopspod.com, Shane Liebling, Check out his dice rolling app, Roll for Your Party, at rollforyour.party, because you know you're playing role-playing games online. Jay Adon and his amazing miniature painting skills over at jayadon.com. Dale Norwood, Dave P., Dale Church, Dave Otterson, and Kip Holly. And finally, an extra special thank you to our detective patrons for their very generous support. Eric Antenor, at Antenor on Twitter. Brian Pereira, at Thermoware. Bill Anderson at BillAnd88, and of course, Richard Haddam at Richard Haddam. We follow them too at 200pod. Why become a patron for as little as $1 an episode? In addition to supporting the show and exclusive episode previews, our patrons get plus expenses, a bonus podcast where Epi and I casually chat about the media we're enjoying and all the other things going on in our lives. Help out the show by leaving a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. Tell a friend who you think would like it. And check out patreon.com slash 200 a day to see if becoming a patron is right for you. We do start our episode at night, and we have two goons, clearly goons, getting out of a car. Uh, They get out. You only see him in profile at first, but I was like, that's a recurring Rockford goon. Right. The guy who's chewing gum as his character trait. Uh, he keep, We see him with some kind of candy at every point. We learn fairly <laughs> soon that his name is, he goes by Sweet Tooth. Um, yes. And he's played by an actor named Eddie Fontaine, uh, who has been in other episodes we've done. It Honestly, I have to tell you, they, they must have named him Sweet Tooth. They, that must have been a script change, because I bet you his character's name was Eddie Fontaine. <laughs> I love how also he has no headshot on IMDb. Um, yes. <laughs> which is very funny to me because he has a very distinctive 70s goon face. I was just looking at his IMDb. He's actually, he was one of the uh, guerrilla sergeants in uh, the Planet of the Apes television <laughs> series. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he's, yeah, you would recognize him. He's been a, he's been a featured, like a featured mob guy in other episodes we've done. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, so anyway, there's Sweet Tooth who's chewing gum, and then there's uh, a sideburns goon who I don't know if we ever get his name. My my notes for this was just like this is a goon approach. Just <laughs> the way they walk up to the house, you're oh, just yeah. like, yeah, they're they're very physically threatening in uh, on camera in a in a, in kind of a uh, not a subtle way, but just like it's just it's a well done way. There's a, a knock on the door. Um, a woman kind of cracks the door open. They're they're asking for for Joey. Um, and then as soon as the door is unlatched, they bust into the house. We have some banter back and forth. Where so these guys are looking for Joey. This woman is saying is basically being like, "You're making a big mistake. You yeah. know that this isn't going to go well for you." And including the line, "You don't have to find him. He'll find you." Yeah. And then uh, Sweet Tooth explodes into violence throws a vase to break this like backdrop that's stuck on the wall and then he and the woman struggle into another room and then we hear the fairly punched up sounds of uh of of her getting 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 smacked around sweet tooth also he's got this smile that uh is just it just gives you the willies like he's (laughs) he's clearly a goon who enjoys his work in a way that yeah Maybe slightly deranged. Um, so we go directly from that very chaotic and uh, uh, kind of scary scene to Jim and Beth dressed up <laughs> going to dinner. Yes. So a nice abrupt tonal shift to bring us to our to our uh, our heroes here. Um, so they're going to this restaurant, which oh, it just happens to, to turn out that it is owned by a friend a friend of Beth. He goes by Joey Blue Eyes, and he needs some help. Jim doesn't like the sound of this from the jump. Um, he's a reformed hood, like Jim, um, which is why she uh, thinks that he can maybe be of service. But Jim uh, doesn't want to talk to, quote, a charity case. Right. We're coming into a situation where where Jim just wants to have dinner with Beth. Yes. <laughs> and now that he's learning that she's like, oh, I, I have ulterior motives for ha- having dinner with you at this specific place. His knee-jerk reaction is to uh, just deny, just to not want anything to do with it. Um, says that he's a selfish guy that way. And then we have a nice cut here where she's like, let me tell you his problem. And then right. we, <laughs> we, we cut away from the exposition, which we'll get later. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's this is a great Jim Beth back and forth, and you could just you just feel the 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 wind come out of Jim's sails, mm-hmm. like like oh we're gonna have a lovely dinner. That it's just oh yeah, all right, yeah this is yeah this is this is cover for getting something out of me. Yeah, so we do cut to them in their booth. This is clearly after they've had dinner. Uh, so we don't get to see what they had. I'd like to imagine that Jim probably got a... Oh, God, what what was his thing? Steak? Steak and fries? <laughs> I mean, I feel like he said something. He says they had a nice meal, I think. Right, yeah, that's it. Um, but they are joined by Joey Blue Eyes. And uh, he is a character. Yes, he is. Yeah, so uh, Michael and Sarah... He's been in a lot of things. The Rambo television show, which <laughs> I didn't know there was. Uh, or maybe that uh, there was a Rambo cartoon at some point, maybe. Uh, but he was, I believe, in Buck Rogers. Hmm. He was a villain in Buck Rogers named Kane. I remember Kane only vaguely. But like uh, the face is so memorable. Mm-hmm. Anyways, none of this is interesting radio. Uh, he has one of those IMDb's that's just... Uh, puts him in everything specifically for for our crossover interests um he was in 
both Star Trek, the original series, and also DS9 yes. and an episode of Voyager. And he plays a Klingon in all of them. I would I would have to do the legwork to see whether this is supposed to be the same character, but he plays a character named Kang in <laughs> multiple series. Yes. So, anyhow. Uh, oh, and he, he voiced a wizard on Thunder the Barbarian, which mm, is important. Right. So, clearly, yeah, uh, definitely hits a, a a venn diagram of all of our interests yes um, but no he's great here this is this is a big a big character yes he's he's a, a certain type of mafia like he's wearing a um what does he wear he's just fancy and sunglasses indoors and yeah. he just looks like he should have a mic in his hand and be like a lounge singer but also he looks like he can break your legs at right. any moment and he comes on very aggressively. Um, he knows Beth, and Beth has clearly told Joey that, oh, I'm going to bring my friend Jim. He can help you out. And yes. then when Joey's like, oh, you're going to help me out. And Jim, Jim, Jim says that he's semi-retired right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that he isn't interested in corporate problems. Uh, because the explanation that he got in the cut was that there's some kind of uh, contractual issue. That, right. that Joey's having with his restaurant. I feel like this is a mixture of Jim like throwing some resistance to Beth just because she sprung this on him. Right, right. But also that, that self-preservation thing that Jim has where he's like, this isn't what it seems. Because Beth probably hasn't, you know, laid out the whole business with loan sharks and everything else. So Jim knows that this is going to be nasty i think you get the sense that as soon as he sees joey he's like yeah i don't want to deal with this guy and i think i believe he in fact says that multiple times like yeah. i just don't like him yeah and i don't have to work for anyone i don't want to right they have great tough guy banter back and forth what beth tells me you've got heavy corporate problems maybe even a nice juicy fraud case and well to tell you the truth con to con i'd just be lost in a deal like that I don't even balance my checkbook too well. So I think we ought to get our check and uh, just mosey right along, huh? This chicken-hearted creep is the honest John you said could help me? Well, now, be nice, Joey, just because I don't want to get messed up. Drift, mister. Get out of my joint. Now, wait a minute. You heard me. Well, I'd like it better if you said please. You're going to rot waiting for that. This whole uh, escalation is cut cut short by a phone call for joey from the hospital and so he goes to answer it and this is where he he tells jim to wait in the alley and yes. we get the the quote from the preview montage of i'm a spur of the moment guy i don't wait in alleys i don't wait in alleys <laughs> outside the restaurant beth is clearly mad at jim says that uh she'll take a taxi she doesn't want him to take her home he says that's ridiculous um but uh specifically you know says like i just don't like the looks of the guy He's 250 pounds of gristle wrapped up like Fred Astaire. I had that written in my notes. I'm like, I tried to describe this guy five minutes earlier when I could have just waited for Jim to do it. Because Jim <laughs> nailed it. So Beth doesn't like that Jim was rude. And Jim yes. is like, well, he was rude. Right. She tells Jim to tell Joey that he's sorry. And then gives him this look. And he yes. reluctantly says, okay, fine, I will. But then as he goes back, turns to go back in, Joey comes running out of the restaurant, shoves his way past Jim and jumps into his own car, which then roars out of the parking lot. First of all, there's wonderful lingering on Beth giving Jim the puppy dog eyes. Like you could do, you can hear Jim's heart melting. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> uh, but then the other bit was this lingering on the cars leaving that made me think that Jim was going to chase after him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wait, what's going to happen here? Mm-hmm. But he did not. No. Um, we have our credits over some night shots of L.A., and then uh, we come back to Jim and Beth in voiceover before going back into the uh, Firebird. Jim is explaining that uh, he and Joey, they're not going to be best buddies. Like, yeah. you, you can't expect that. Um, Beth is still mad. Uh, Why don't you just come right out and say you don't care about anybody but yourself? I don't care about anybody but myself. That's a rotten thing to say. <laughs> We, we finish our transition uh, through the credits with Jim stopping the car by the side of the road. He's like, okay, fine. You're mad. I'm mad. Let's talk this out. Yeah. So now we get uh, some of the uh, exposition of our background here. Uh, Joey was a mob enforcer. He went to jail. He got out of jail. And then Beth says that she's never seen anyone try to go straight as hard as he has. Yeah. He got into the restaurant business. Um, his restaurant's doing really well. He wants to expand. So he brings in this partner, this guy named Stryker. And Joey's lawyer, named Larry Mitchell, sets up the contracts. But then it turns out that Larry Mitchell was being paid on the DL by Stryker to make these contracts unfavorable to Joey. So now the situation is Joey has 49% of the restaurant and full ownership of the supply company that are also part of this franchise and there's a deal for him to buy out his partner at a fixed price and that's coming up in two days but it turns out that the other companies are all in debt to the restaurant um because it's all been kind of arranged this way kind of behind his back so he can't just sell those companies because the restaurant that he does not currently have the majority interest in uh will foreclose wants to foreclose on them which keeps him from raising any capital. Yes. Which means he can't raise the capital to buy out the business. So I think they sum it up with, you know, he has to buy it back with money that he is being, that he's been cheated out of by his, by his partners. This is an, a delightfully Rockford Files plot. And it's all legal, right? That's, that's right. Yeah. Part yeah. Of it. That's the, but yeah, he's in a lot of trouble. He's about to lose his dream. And Beth's like, all right, if you won't talk to him, talk to his daughter. Her name's Paulette. She's a friend of mine from school. And Jim's like, oh, okay, uh, fine. You want to help <laughs> out Paulette. Well, in that case, I'm happy to talk to you. Yeah. He finds the little relief valve that, that allows him to justify you right. know, doing what he knows is the right thing. Right? <laughs> and again, the looks that he, that he gets from <sighs> Beth and this. Throughout the episode, there's lots of great looks even when they're not the center of what's happening mm-hmm. between the two of them it's good it's worth watching uh we are then we then go to our first appearance of bert striker chapman uh, aka lieutenant chapman <laughs> in the previous life i think we could headcanon uh part of part of his progress if we really wanted to but we'll right. talk about that later <laughs> um so he's uh he's on the phone um with this lawyer mitchell the takeaway here is that you know, they're really close to having this deal go through. They couldn't have done it without Mitchell's, you know, underhandedness. And he wants another $1,000 a month added to his retainer. Stryker says, uh, I think he just hangs up on him. Yeah. And then says to himself, I'll take care of you, Larry. You can depend on it. He, he makes a good villain. Both of us are primed not to like him anyways, but. Right, right. Uh, he does that, that, that speaking menacingly to himself. 
<laughs> well, now that doesn't become a thing ever again in this episode. No, I was just checking. We don't actually see Mitchell again. This was, and he was yeah. actually lit with backlight. We never really saw his face. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think this is kind of part of the head fake, almost of the preview montage. Yeah. Uh, uh, Striker sounds like again. I'm primed to think, and then this yeah adds to that thought that this is like a mob thing. Yeah, but I think this is mostly just to establish there's a lot of money involved, and that Striker is not a nice guy. Yeah, exactly. It might also exist to just allow us to not worry about the lawyer part of the plan anymore. Oh, that's true. Yeah, like the lawyer, the, this lawyer that did all this dirty work. We don't need to worry about him. He's dead. <laughs> it doesn't say that he's dead, but like, like he's not an angle that Rockford can follow up on or or anything like that. He's essentially written out of the plot, so we don't need to worry about him. Between this and also uh, something yeah. that that Beth says later um, about his company, so. Oh, right. Yeah. So that's, yeah, I hadn't thought about that. But yeah, because there is like, this story could potentially have another stakeholder and another yeah, exactly. direction. <laughs> and then this is just like, you know what? We set it up. This guy was involved with the setup. And then we don't need to worry about him anymore. We have enough yeah. going on. Um, Joey's driving around questioning people on the street. He wants to talk to Sweet Tooth. And then he uh, evidently gets the information he's looking for. Um, he, he, Echoes the original uh, shot where he knocks on the door and then rushes it in when they kind of open it a crack. Um, and sure enough, Sweet Tooth and his buddy are just kind of hanging out around a card table in a generic apartment. <laughs> like like uh, Lone Sharks do. Like Lone Sharks do. Uh, Joey takes them both down immediately. <laughs> it's pretty great, actually. It's a meaty fight. <laughs> it's a meaty fight. There's meaty thunks. Yeah. Uh, which ends up with him uh, pulling a, a gun on Sweet Tooth, protesting. is like, it, this is all a mistake. It wasn't me. It was an accident. And uh, uh, Joey says, so is this. And then just pistol whips him across the face. <laughs> he is obviously incensed because the woman they beat up was his daughter, Paulette, right. as I believe we all were putting together uh, over the last couple scenes. And I think that line, like... I don't remember the exact line. That was one of the ones I didn't write down. There's so many to write down, though. <laughs> um, was it was like you know you come for me, you're in trouble. But it, you've come for my daughter, you're dead. Right. Whatever. Whatever. Like obviously written better. But uh, I think that was also in the opening montage. I, I was already aware that she was his daughter mm-hmm. uh, from the get go. Yeah. Like I knew that he was heading to the hospital for her. Right. I had made that assumption. Yes. And then we go to the hospital because now we follow Beth and Jim as they yeah. are at Paulette's bedside. Um, yeah. She is all bruised up, but she says she's okay and that she was telling Joey what happened. And then when she said the name Sweet Tooth, he stormed off. But she doesn't know who that is. They uh, explain a little bit more about the, the con- contractual issues. The point comes up of, well, if Mitchell was your lawyer, but he also set up, but he's also on Stryker's payroll, isn't that a conflict of interest? And right. Beth says that she brought that up to him, but it turns out that his contract, he's getting paid $36,000 a year by Stryker's company, but it's his company has the contract, not him personally. Yeah. So she can't take him to the to the California bar over it. Where otherwise she could if if it was a personal deal, I guess. Um, so this is where Jim says that uh, they need a CPA, not a PI. This leads into uh, one of Beth's biggest power plays I've ever seen her do. <laughs> where she's like, she tells Paulette, Jim doesn't want to help Paulette. 
<laughs> Paulette's like, why? He doesn't like your father. <laughs> it's so Just, good. Wow. Yeah, yeah. They they establish the timeline here too. So that they're like, even though this is all built on contracts and maybe the contracts could be invalidated by the courts or whatever, the amount of time that would take. Oh yeah, yeah. They can't do it in the next two days, and that's the deadline for this um, option. So if he doesn't do the option in the next two days, the option goes away, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so even if legally they can fix it, they can't fix it in time. Yeah, yeah. I think Paulette says something like, so what are you going to do? And this is where, <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, yeah, it is one of the strongest plays. It is brutal. It's almost as brutal as when Joey beat down Sweet Tooth. Well, I was <laughs> like trying to just... remember, I was like, someone did this to Jim recently in, in an episode we did recently. I was trying to remember, it's, it's, it is even more brutal than when Richie Brockelman is telling Rocky that Jim right. doesn't have time to help him. Yes. And he'll have to figure it out on his own. And Jim's just in the background being like, ah. <laughs> That was harsh. That was a power move yeah. on Richie's part. Clearly, he learned from watching Beth. <laughs> yeah. This. Oh, my God. I was wincing. Do you have any ideas, Mr. Rockford? Oh, Jim doesn't want to help Paulette. Why? He doesn't like your father. Oh, Beth. Beth, I didn't say that. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought that was it. <laughs> I'm sorry. That is exactly what you said to me. And she is in the right. She is not lying. Yeah. Everything she says is true. It is It is wonderful. This is one of the best bits about Beth's character is that, like, you you got these moments where she feels like, like she's all sweet and delicate and stuff like that. But, like, she's, like, obviously a killer lawyer. Like, that. that's part of why. Right. And usually we see this when something legal's on, on the line and she's just, in fact, later on in this episode, there's a moment where she just lays out the law and is like, I will, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, this was just that same attitude, just nailing Jim. And it's mm -hmm. just so, so good. Jim put himself in that position. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, clearly we're, we're waiting for whatever is going to get Jim to be like, okay, fine, I'll help. Right. Like that's right, the, right. that's the, that's the show. But this particular moment is, uh, yeah, we're on Beth's side here. I would, I would say. This is worthy of reaction gifts. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, so good. And then this is, uh, given extra importance by a phone call to Paulette that she answers and, um. Looks like they're going to have to come up with something because Joey is back in jail. Uh, watch Jim when this when this news is revealed <laughs> because he's been doing a lot of losing in this scene. Mm -hmm. And when he hears that Joey's in jail, that's a little bit of a win for him. Sure, and so he yeah, has yeah. he has a nice grin on his face. It's a, not a grin; it's a little smile where he's like, "Okay, but I was right there." <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the thing is he's not wrong about Joey. Like, no, he's Joey not. is a tough person to like, right? Um. Though he gets more charming over the course of the yeah, show, of, the, of this episode. Which, again, is a testament to Michael and Sarah. All right, so we have Beth and Jim with Joey in a jail holding cell. So there's a harmonica-like riff that's in the transition. And then yeah. it just extends into the scene. And I noted it. I'm like, oh, there's a harmonica st score. And then, I don't know if you saw this, but in the shot there's two cells like in the background like across the little oh, hallway this. one of the guys is just playing the harmonica it's <laughs> it's it's diegetic it's in the scene <laughs> nice. 
Nice. <laughs> so this has that going for it. Yeah. So I already appreciate it. And uh, I also want to talk about the staging. So the, the content of the scene is this. Um, Joey, clearly he was arrested after beating up Sweet Tooth. Um, how is he supposed to keep his cool after they beat up on Paulette? Sure. Uh, we understand your motivation. Thank you. <laughs> So it turns out that, as we've been saying, but as we just discover now in the plot, Sweet Tooth is a loan shark, and Joey borrowed $50,000 from said loan shark as part of the money to pay off Stryker. Um, you know, Beth didn't know where that money came from, right, because mm-hmm. Joey kept that from her. Uh, Jim has some choice uh, choice notes to say about his methods, and then they come around to saying that, yes, he is going to help, but he's only going to do it if they do things his way, and that means that Joey has to put his brass knuckles away and uh, <laughs> stop chasing off after everyone every time he gets mad. This is kind of the moment where they, they come to an understanding, because there's even a moment where Jim's like, Beth tries to, to keep Jim from going overboard, he's like, no, let me talk. And then he... Lays it out straight for Joey. Joey uh, respects that Jim is willing to talk to him like that. No one's talked to him like that for a long time. And they agree to do it Jim's way, which is going to, of course, cost him $200 a day plus expenses starting last night. Yes. And then the the scene ends with, uh, it turns out that Sweet Tooth is not pressing charges and they're going to let, you know, so they they let him go. So that's all fine. Now, what's great about this scene yes. is, is the blocking and the status stuff conveyed by the physical movement. There, there's a whole bit with Jim's pacing at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Joey is like, you got to do that. And Jim's like, old habits. Because they're both ex-con, right? right. Like, neither one's uncomfort- comfortable in this situation here, but, like, is familiar with it. And, yeah, I, I really... This was a good scene. Uh, lots of great lines in it. Yeah, too. lots of great lines. So specifically, what's great? So there's, you know, so so they're all in a shot where Beth's on the left sitting down, uh, Joey's on the right sitting down. There's a little table, and then Jim is pacing back and forth between them. And then in the background, there's a guy playing the harmonica. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so after Joey. You know, gets annoyed at Jim for pacing and then gets up to get to yell at him. Jim then takes his seat and then Joey starts pacing back and forth. Yes. And this is all before there's any cuts, any like going to close ups or anything. So we just see this transition of Beth and Joey with Jim having the energy and then the confrontation and then Jim taking over joey's seat and you know joey having the the nervous energy and 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 the transition the transition of who's kind of in charge right. is is made manifest by the that blocking um it's good stuff we then have another strong contrast in tone as we cut from the jail cell to a carnival ride um <laughs> it's still night and we're at some kind of a street carnival Sweet Tooth yeah. is talking to his mustached buddy, holding a little thing of candy as uh, Joey and Jim come up behind them in the darkness. <laughs> the fact that this is staged at a carnival is interesting. Uh, like, I've got nothing to say about it other than it's fun. It's just like one of those things where it's like, okay, like, it's just yeah, an interesting way to do it. Um, it kind of stands out. Uh, yeah, it's it's not precisely the ice rink 
exchange, mm-hmm. which is still one of my all-time favorite moments. <laughs> it has that ener- it has that kind of energy though, where it's like Yeah, it does. I guess this is part of like I was saying there's lots of Rockfordishness. This is a very Rockfordishness moment where it's like, sure, let's do this at a carnival. Like it could be anywhere. This isn't a setup for a big chase sequence. It's not like a like the carnival doesn't play into anything else. Uh, we are clearly spending too much time on the podcast talking about it. But <laughs> I mean, it's just tying into this guy's sweet tooth because he likes candy. Yeah, so exactly. he's at a carnival. Like that's pretty much all <laughs> all of the logic that's there. Uh, Jim wants to talk to him privately, and so he he tells the other guy to you know keep an eye on Joey, which I think is funny. Um, yeah, he does say that he's Jim Taggart, which I always appreciate. Yes, uh, good old Jim, <laughs> just covering his bases just in case. He says, you know, I'm Joey's lawyer, and then we cut to a laughing mannequin. From like a carnival display. And then we cut to the two of them in a Ferris wheel seat. (laughs) Shoved together looking very uncomfortable with this upshot. Like the camera is kind of below them and is fixed with them. So as it's clearly a practical, like they're on a Ferris wheel. And so the camera keeps with them as the Ferris wheel is going around. So we're seeing the background move around behind them. It's wild yeah like there's so much going on for something that is just a conversation that could be anywhere yeah (laughs) but what what jim lays out as joey's lawyer is that he wants sweet tooth to loan joey another two hundred thousand dollars because he needs 250 to pay off to exercise his option buy his restaurant yeah if he doesn't get the restaurant, he will never be able to pay off that 50k he already borrowed. Yeah. Sweet Tooth isn't really buying it. I don't back horses with hard conditions, pal. Yeah, he goes broke. You're left with a short end of nothing. Huh, not me. The people I got to answer to that, they don't like shakedowns unless they're shaking. Yeah, it's a sunk cost fallacy, right? Like mm-hmm. it- Yeah, it's it's good money after bad and uh and tell Joey that if he doesn't have the money by Friday, Joey's done and his daughter. Yeah. So there's a, another threat there. I, I think one of my favorite things about this uh, this episode is that Jim has a plan. And this is his first attempt at it. And he'll mm-hmm. make three attempts at it throughout <laughs> the whole. And it'll all be the same plan, just with different ways of doing it. Which is just right. to get the money to pay it off from the people who owe him or who he owes money to and it's it sounds more complex when i say it out loud it's not that complex but when you're watching it it feels intricate right Mm. but it's the same thing he's just gonna do the same thing each time he's just gonna make a different attempt at at uh getting this two hundred thousand dollars or two hundred fifty thousand dollars Something that came up in the earlier exposition is that there's this whole, like, franchising of the restaurant that's, that's yeah. part of the deal. Worth millions. Yeah. Or and something like and that. And that's worth a lot of money. So if Joey can just buy his whole restaurant back, then yeah. he is going to have the access to all of this other money and he'll be able to pay back the loan, et cetera, et cetera. But if he doesn't, then he's out, right? So it's a it's a do or die thing. Um, and that's kind of the crux of all of these 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 gambits that, that Jim is, is exercising. Uh, Sweet Tooth doesn't go for it. And so that ends up being the end of that effort. Like, we don't see Sweet Tooth again. I mean, we don't see that Sweet Tooth again. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, again, kind of this sub-theme of, like, here's someone that could be complicating the story further, but now we're done with him. Yeah. Well, there's, like, there's a time pressure, and you kind of get the feel of, like, uh, 
it's like okay that didn't work okay let's move on to the next one right like, right, let's right just just move through them until we get to it but yeah i guess there's something about how something of the 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 craft of this particular episode is like none of those feel like loose ends they do feel like i mean i wasn't thinking about it in the moment it's just like we move on to the next thing and it's compelling enough that you just don't even think about, I wonder if there's anything else that's going to happen with that guy. Right. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Of course, what keeps our attention next is that we cut to Jim driving with angel. Angel. This was interesting to me. And I feel like this might be a very second season kind of thing. So our initial banter, which is always good with angel is all about Jim is always coming to Angel and asking him for favors and acting like Jim saved his life in a foxhole. Yeah. (laughs) But the only danger that Angel gets in is when Jim pushes him into it by asking him these favors. Yes. Which I totally get, totally makes sense, but is also the opposite of our lived experience with Angel throughout the course of the show. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Where it's like, this is very pot calling the kettle black uh, from from my perspective. But I think perhaps in the linear timeline, you know, Jim and Angel are still back and forth with this kind of stuff as opposed to the point we eventually get where like Angel is always the one coming to Jim and pulling Jim into trouble. Right. Uh, there's another thing, too. The scene kind of plays into, which is Angel... Well, Angel's buttering Jim up at some point in the scene and, mm. and calls him, like, the champion of cons. Yeah, or yeah, the, yeah. The conning champion or whatever. And that's another thing that's, like... Like, we like to talk about Jim's little cons here and there and, and, and whatnot. And they're clearly great episodes where Jim is just trying to orchestrate a con. But, yeah, it just feels like a little... like. Uh, they're, they're trying to establish with the audience that that Jim maybe he's he's close enough to the criminal element here that it's not uh, as this episode plays out. Well, we're going to get into a con. He's doing things in already starting to do things in a quasi legal way, and this is the 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 sort of descent to it. Yeah, this is this is laying the groundwork for something that we don't even really know is a con yet. Yeah, yeah. Jim does say that this is Wall Street, not Main Street. So the worst that can happen is that Angel's going to get stabbed with a pen. Yes. So so clearly Angel has this, you know, he's been given this 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 story. And Jim is sending him in to talk to Stryker. Right. And he does specifically say to not mention his name. <laughs> well, let's take a little break. Uh, we want to make sure that you know where you can follow all of our other projects and interests online. Epi, where can our listeners find you? Uh, you can Google Epidia. I am the only one out there that I know of. Uh, you can go to digathousandholes.com. That's the number a thousand. Or you can go to worlds, plural, without master, singular, dot com and uh, find my work there. How about you, Nathan? My internet home for all things NDP is at ndpdesign.com. You can find all of the links and information for all of my various games, including the Worldwide Wrestling role-playing game, my zines, and uh, podcast projects, of which perhaps there may be more than one. You can also find me on Instagram and Twitter at ndpaoletta. As always, if you want more information about the podcast, go to 200aday.fireside.fm. And now back to the continuing adventures of Jimbo Rockfish. And we go into uh, uh, an establishing shot of Striker Industries 
Angel is introduced here as Mr. London, and and throughout the scene, he's, like, unwrapping candies and stuff. Yeah. I thought that was a little weird, and then I realized later that I was supposed to pick up on the fact that he is, in fact, impersonating Sweet Tooth. Right. Whose full name is Sweet Tooth London. Yeah. So, you know, that comes together in a later scene, but uh, that is why he is unwrapping candies from his pockets. <laughs> There's even a moment where Jim's like, keep chewing that. Yeah. Like, yeah. like as if he's force feeding him candy for the roll or something. But uh, Mr. London goes in to talk to Bert Stryker. In the world of plaid. In the world. There's so much plaid. <laughs> uh, and there's also a guy who's kind of like a lawyer or accountant or something named yeah. uh, Ed, I believe. Or is that Fred? Might be Fred. It might be Fred. I wrote down Ed at some point, but perhaps it is Fred. Anyway, he's kind of like he's the guy who signs things. Yes. And he's pretty much with Stryker the whole the whole episode. Anyway, uh Angel's thing. He claims he's the shark that Joey owes fifty thousand to. His line is, I'm a banker, twenty percent per week. <laughs> Alright, so here's the here's the offer. Joey has come to him asking for another two hundred thousand dollars. So that he can buy his interest in the company. And as part of that conversation, he told Angel, Sweet Tooth, that there's $8 million tied up in the franchise. Yeah. And so Angel's pitching that basically he'd rather deal with the guy who already has the money. And if Stryker gives him $200,000, he'll vanish, which means that Joey will never be able to pay back the loan. Or pay, we'll never be able to exercise his option. And then what's $200,000 compared to the $8 million that's on right. the line here? I guess with the threat of, or I'll loan him the 200000 he buys his interest, and you're going to get nothing. Yeah. We get a good pregnant pause before uh, Stryker gives him the counteroffer of zero. Zero. <laughs> and he throws Angel out. I wasn't sure if this was more complicated than I thought it was, or if I was making it more complicated than it actually is in the way that I was writing it down. This is definitely one where, upon reflection after the episode, I have a better understanding of what they were trying to do in this scene. Uh, but I knew that $200,000 was a necessary amount of money. So right, right. the fact that it kept coming up, I was like, oh, okay. And the guy Fred rephrases it for us also, where he's like, you know, so they throw they throw Angel out. Angel has uh, just kind of casually taken a cigar in, in the intro, oh, which yeah. I thought was very funny. Um, but they throw Angel out, and he's like, Bert, I, I don't like this. If they lend Joey the money, he'll pay us off, and we're out. It's a bluff. There are too many ifs. If they were that smart, if they even had it to begin with. It's a wonder he didn't ask me to validate his parking ticket. Still, it doesn't hurt to make sure. Right. So my my attention to detail brain was assuaged. I was like, okay, I, I, I get it now. I had this thing when I was watching it where I, I was trying to figure out, because I had misunderstood Angel's play, and I mm -hmm. thought he was telling him that if Stryker lent them the $200, he would give the 200 or 200000 200000 He would give the 200000 to Joey, who would then buy it out. And I was like, why would Stryker? do that and, right, and then right, right. i was like, oh right no he's not that aspect i know that that's what angel's going to do <laughs> but uh striker doesn't right but the one of the things about striker which will show up a few times is that he just isn't biting he just isn't biting he's like these someone's trying to scam me he's like but i do want to make sure so he sends uh ganon to go 
uh, yes. you know, to, to go follow uh, follow Angel out to deal with him. Now, uh, our listeners may remember Ganon from uh, the Legend of Zelda uh, <laughs> video game. Who's the main villain in that? And oh, sorry. <laughs> this is a very corporate goon. Yeah. Uh, this is of the same mold as um, what's his name? Robert Mitchell. His char- right. his character in uh, uh, Never Send a Boy King to Do a Man's Job. How he has that guy like his fixer. Ganon's a, a guy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Exactly. We go outside and we see. This is a great sequence where we just see this all from. Jim's perspective with no dialogue where this guy Ganon follows Angel, grabs his shoulder and then we see his hand in his pocket and he's clearly, you know has a gun in his pocket and he starts hustling Angel over to his car which happens to be parked behind Rockford and so Jim slams the Firebird into reverse, backs into the car as they're trying to get into it which sends everyone flying Angel stumbles away jumps in the Firebird, and the chase is on. Yeah. This is, okay, before we get into it, this is a good chase. Mm-hmm. This is This has got lots of good classic Rockford things, but also it just, it takes up a, 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 quite a bit of uh, screen time. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's just like solid, just very solid throughout. It's interesting because it keeps on, it keeps on getting to moments where I think it's going to be over. Right. Like you think, oh, this is the clever thing that Rockford's going to do to end it. And, yeah. uh, and it just isn't enough. So specifically, the whole... And this one has a good, like, narrative to it. Specifically, it's all about the superior agility of the Firebird. Yes. Like, it's all about Jim being able to corner tighter corners and make tighter circles. And every time he does something that involves him cutting a corner, cutting through a parking lot, uh, pulling a U-turn... He's gaining just a little bit of distance on the pursuit. This other car is a yacht. Yeah. Like, it is It is big. He pulls a U-turn. He goes into a parking lot. And where I thought it was going to be the classic pull in yeah. and park and stop. <laughs> but uh, the guy's still too close, so they pull up the other side. The specific moment that I thought was going to be the end is he, he oh, pulls yeah. into this really tight alley. And then makes a sharp turn where there's another tight alley. And we see how tight it is for the Firebird. And then yeah. we follow the the, the the pursuing car. And it bumps. Like it tries yeah, to it take the turn, the turn. And it can't quite make it. And he has to make like like a, like a five point turn to get into it. Yeah. But he does make it eventually. I thought that that was just going to be him being stuck. Yeah. I thought we were going to have a scene of him like even trying to open the door to get out to be angry right. and not able to do it. Right. Mm-hmm. Like just so frustrated with it. But no, he gets out. Yeah. And then it does end with uh, Jim pulling into like a, I think with some luck, right? He pulls into like a construction yard right yeah. as they're closing up. And so he pulls in, kicks up all this dust. And then this guy in a hard hat just starts closing the the gate <laughs> behind him. The the pursuing car comes by and like a, like a predator just kind of mm-hmm. slows down and realizes it can't get at, you know, whatever. Right. There's something about the interior shots of at this point when Jim talks to Angel after this that makes me think that Jim pulled into a cargo container or something. I think he's behind a dumpster. Okay, that might be it. Yeah. I think we see him turn around 
And then we see a dumpster in kind of the foreground as we're watching the right the guy close the gate. And then, yeah, they're in, like, shadow in the interior yeah. shots. So I think he's behind a big construction dumpster. Um, so, yeah, so that yeah, that breaks off the pursuit. They can't get through this fence and also possibly can't see the car. Yeah. And also the, the front of it's all mangled because part of it was also Jim comes shooting out of the narrow alley, takes a sharp turn. Oh, that, yeah. That, that swerves into the oncoming traffic lane of this of a, the, the cross street. Yeah. And this car swerves to avoid him. And then... The pursuing car comes shooting out, makes a wider turn because it can't make the narrow turn, and just slams its corner into that car that had already swerved. Yeah. <laughs> so it's all busted up in front also. Yeah. It's making some awful noises. Yeah, yeah. Which is also great. And again, I thought that was going to be the end of the, like, Jim right, suckered exactly. it into hitting another car. But uh, the determination was strong for Gannon. There's a great angel line. There's a lot of good angel lines, obviously, but like... Those guys are looking to dust me, and I'm telling you, I don't want to be dusted. I hate to die just yet. Really hate to. I'll look into it. Yeah, I'd appreciate it. Now, let's get out of here. <laughs> All right, then we go to Jim, Joey, and Paulette. Uh, Paulette is doing paperwork for the restaurant. Um, this is to establish that she kind of runs... The details like keeps the place yeah. going. She's like, I can't believe you gave that guy another raise. And and he's like, he just got married. Yeah. <laughs> so you get the sense that like maybe he, you know, she's kind of the brains of the operation essentially. Right. And you also kind of get a little bit of Joey being a good guy. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like he's just been a heavy as far as we've noticed. And now it's like, oh no, he takes care of his employees. Uh, this is a scene that has a lot more character work than like plot importance. Um, yeah what this revolves around is that, you know, Joey wants results. Jim doesn't seem to be doing anything with this 200 a day that he's paying him. Yeah. Jim doesn't have a lot to go on. Maybe if Joey could give him some more to go on, he could get some results. They start yelling at each other. Well, the only reason he's in trouble was because I made the mistake of picking up on your case. Well, tell him to wrap it. And you too. Well, all right. You just point me to the right hole. You are the expert. Now, Crawford. Do it. My God, go ahead, do it. Kill each other! And then Paulette can't stand it. She throws down her stuff and explodes. And, <laughs> and that, that gets through to them, brings the energy back down. Um, Joey apologizes. First, he apologizes to Paulette. And then he does apologize to Jim. Yeah. Uh, which I think is an important moment. And he has a little bit of a soliloquy here. That never is enough. They break your back. They tell you you should try harder. You should walk straight with a broken back. I never asked for anything special. I made mistakes. I paid for my county shoes. Total nine years of it since I was 14. Pretty dumb, right? It's all dumb. Playing by the rules that don't mean what they say. It it feels very appropriate to the present day. (laughs) Yes. Not only is Paulette sort of functionally running it, but also she officially is, right? Like, we we learned that uh, this is the... Uh, how they get around the fact that he's an ex-con. It's in her name. Yeah, and so Jim thinks maybe they're going about it wrong. Maybe we should look at these technical details of the contracts because that's all these people understand. Um, the the revelation that everything is technically in Paulette's name gives him an idea. Yeah. And we end the scene with him saying that uh, he's got to get Stryker out of his office and into the street. Poke him hard enough to get him to hit back. 
It might not be on the up and up, but it might just get the restaurant. We go to a golf course where I have a note that nothing good ever happens on golf courses. <laughs> but we start off with a uh, uh, striker clearly finished a round of golf with a uh, with a, an older gentleman. They're laughing and laughing and striker saying that, well, now that he has that restaurant, you know, now that he has the full ownership of the restaurant business, he'll be able to pay off those loans. Yes. And then he'll have a lot more business to give to this other guy. Well, one thing I like about this is that this is the legal version of the exact same shakedown that Angel, or no, no, sorry, that um, Rockford was offering uh, Sweet Tooth, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like he's he's <laughs> thanking the bank for sticking with him because now he can make, he's got enough money now that he can make enough money to pay the bank back or whatever. That's exactly what Rockford <laughs> was trying to do. Yep, yep. Uh, and it, and it's giving us that nod to the pressure on Stryker, where it's not just that he's a jerk. He also has, he's also gotten himself into a situation where he needs this. Um, and maybe this was the plan all along. Maybe this is a new development because he knew this was coming. But like, yes, he is a, he is a terrible person, but he also has a motivation that's not just being a villain in a TV series. Yeah, yeah. Jim rolls in to talk to him. Again, Jim Taggart. Uh, he wants to talk to Stryker about his company. Um, you already met my associate, Sweet Tooth London. I'm like, oh, okay. Now that you've given me the text, I get it now. <laughs> um, he knows that the banks are breathing down Stryker's neck. Um, Stryker doesn't care about Jim's business. So Jim is posing as another loan shark or kind of like, like Angel's boss, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Jim's line here is the following. Uh, Joey's into them for $50,000. They want to collect their money. They see this opportunity to get another 200000 in order to make this all happen. Now they've kidnapped Paulette because she has the power of attorney for all of the paperwork. And they know that Stryker's going to be in a lot of trouble with those banks if he can't produce Paulette to sign over the contracts. Yes. Um, because, you know, it's all, it's all under her name. And then, sure, you'll probably be able to get them through the legal process, you know, that's going to take a long time. Yeah. And what are you going to use to pay back those those loans in the meantime? Taking the condition that is creating problems for Joey and turning them yes. into problems for Stryker. Uh, that was a very big pie to slice. All we're interested in is our 50000 investment plus interest. 250000 I thought it was 200000 Well, time is money. 250000 by midnight. I can reach you at your office. Good, good. I appreciate that. <laughs> and then Jim pieces out. So now the deal has gone from give us $200,000 to disappear and you get to do what you wanted to do in the first place to mm-hmm. give us $250,000 to give you Paulette back so that she can make the thing you want to happen happen. Right? Yes. The, we, we stay with Stryker as Jim leaves and uh, his, 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 his guy Fred is there. Fred's like, what are we going to do? And Stryker basically is correct. He's like, this is this is a con. Like, it's got to be a con. And again, he's just not falling for it. Yeah. If those guys took Paulette, uh, have Ganon follow him, they'll lead us to her. We'll get her back. Everything will be fine. Yeah. So it's funny. He's he's right about everything except for accepting the initial identity of, of, Jim. of, of Jim. Yeah. Um, and clearly at this point, this is what Jim is expecting. Right. Yeah. He's he he knows that Angel's shakedown didn't work. Uh, so he fi- figures it. Yeah. I'm going to play like I'm an increasingly desperate loan shark just trying to get my money and trying to play yeah. it cool. But I know he doesn't believe that. Right. 
Yeah. Or even if he does, he doesn't care. He, it's not that he doesn't believe that they're loan sharks. He doesn't believe that they've kidnapped anyone. Yeah, he's kind of like, if they have, then following right. following them will lead us to her. I, if they haven't, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not that he doesn't believe they're loan sharks. It's that he doesn't believe that they're going to do any, like, yeah. Yeah. Or at least maybe in the first place he didn't believe he was a loan shark. But now that Jim has backed that up with his second appearance, it doesn't matter too much. It's just that, like, right. there's a layer there of Jim anticipating at what level Stryker is going to not believe what he's saying. Uh, so now we watch a, a new car. This one's red. The last one was blue. <laughs> Follow Jim. And again, I, I, I guess this is another motif. It's not really a motif, but this is another aspect of this episode that I'm just realizing now as we're talking about it or giving me indications that something's going to happen that doesn't. Um, like there's chase music during this sequence, but it's not a chase because right. Jim's being intentionally being followed. But we have all these little moments that are like, oh, Jim's going to get away right here. Like, yeah. he, like he pulls behind a bigger truck and you can't see the firebird. Then he pulls out again and you do see the firebird. It's like, oh, okay. No, this is all on purpose. We get... We get this shot as um, largely from the pursuer's point of view, too, which is interesting. Like yeah, we don't yeah. normally we get Jim trying to lose the tail. But here we have the tail trying not to attract Jim's attention, I think. Or, you and then know. we have like the final shot of Jim kind of like looking in his rear view and then just like continuing to drive it's like oh, yes. this is all going according to plan uh we cut to a bar where joey is arm wrestling a guy in a hard hat <laughs> oh jeez it's just <laughs> it's good it's good you it's less so once you see his full face but this guy looks like legendary uh professional wrestler rick rude to me <laughs> Like, if Rick Rude wore a hard hat and then turns out he had a slightly skinnier face. Um, <laughs> it was very funny to me. Anyway, uh, so this guy is old buddies with Joey. And Joey, uh, he's working this construction job. And Joey needs some blueprints. And he needs them tomorrow. And the guy's like, all right, I'll do what I can. I completely forgot about this scene until we came back to it just now. But I guess it is establishing the... That they, yeah, what the what their plan is Yeah, the, This is explaining yeah. the very end of the con once we get so there. So this is, this is uh, why we have this podcast. Because <laughs> my brain, when I watch this, I'm like, oh, okay, that the, that'll be important then. The, that that they've they're getting these blueprints, whatever these blueprints are. And then I forget it. Mm-hmm. And then like it does enough to satisfy my brain to know that it's important. And then uh but obviously the way this plays out, you can see why it's important, what they need to know. I feel like this episode is kind of like it's interesting in contrast with the last one we did, where's Houston, where there were so many little things in that one that were like, this is going to be important later. And then it wasn't. Yeah. And this one, there's all these little things that are important, but I completely forgot had been established by the time yes. <laughs> why they're important comes back up. I don't know if that's good. Like this episode didn't need to have this scene in it. I don't know if we need the explanation. Hold on. Hold on. This scene does have the line. Yours ain't exactly peanut butter, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I think in reference to his arm. <laughs> and still, champ, Joey Blue Eyes. You can use that thing as a jackhammer. Uh, yours ain't exactly peanut butter, you know. Like, yeah, yeah, it sounds good. Okay, so this scene needs to be in this episode, but yeah. th- this <laughs> explanation of the reveal at the end doesn't need, right. like... Yeah, yeah. I never would have missed a setup for what happens at the end. Yeah. But I'm glad it's here. 
Yeah, I, I know what you're saying, and I agree. Like, uh, it, it's it's interesting because um, a lot of times you feel these things done in voiceover after the fact. Like, maybe somebody has been watching it, and they're like, "Oh, we really should explain why they knew how to do that." Yeah. All right, we'll just have some. Oh, it's a good thing you ran into your buddy. Yeah. Or Joey being like, I know a guy who can get us those blueprints. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but instead they gave us the scene. Yeah, it's just part of the fabric of the episode. Yeah. Well, we've now talked about the scene for longer than it runs. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we now go to uh, another good one. All right. So now we, we, we cut back to Gannon as he is calling in to report that he's parked outside a restaurant where Jim Taggart has gone in. And he's just waiting for him to come out. They're like, keep on watching him. He's going to lead us to... Paulette eventually. We, from Gannon's perspective, see Joey pull up outside this restaurant, charge into the front. There's a pause. Some other people come out. And then Jim and Joey both come out yelling at each other. And then Joey has a gun. And he's like yelling, where's Paulette? And Jim's like, you know, doing the like, come on, we can talk about this. And then we watch Joey shoot Jim twice in the chest. And that's a wrap on 200 a day. Uh, we have completed the Rockford Files <laughs> series. <laughs> it's a shame that it ended there in the second season. <laughs> so then Gannon calls Stryker and tells him, I just saw this happen. Yes. And Stryker's like, uh, oh, I guess this was all legit. Like, this convinces right. Stryker that the story was real. I guess we're going to need to get the $250,000 together. Again, it's like, who are you going to deal with? Well, there's still that guy, Sweet Tooth. Right. Now, if, if Taggart's dead, then Sweet Tooth's going to take over. We then cut to the trailer where Jim's saying, well, that's a good shirt and a good coat on the expense account. <laughs> As uh, they had, you know, prepped it with some 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 prop blood. Joey, Angel, uh, I think everyone's there. Joey, Angel, Paulette. I don't think Beth is there. Beth's not there. And he compliments Joey on doing a good job. You get the sense that Joey didn't have to act that much. <laughs> yeah. But they're all smiles. They're all like, I feel like this is like a bonding experience for for, yeah. for Jim and, and, and Joey. Uh, Angel is now up to make the call, and he's clearly nervous. I don't know, Jimmy. I think we ought to sweat him a couple more hours. Well, come on, Angel. You're not going to get hurt. But I know that. I just think it's a little early yet. Hey, Angel, you punking up? Me? Me punking up? What, are you kidding? Well, good. I'm actually looking forward to this. All right, come on, let's get on the phone. I don't I don't have the number, Jimmy. It's right here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Any little weasel room. Yeah, but he does make the call, and he plays his role well. He asks if Stryker arranged the hit, which is a nice touch. Um, yes. They set up the deal, uh, $250,000, drop it in a litter box, which... I guess is a period term for a trash can. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in a park. Once they have the money, they'll drop the girl at Joey's restaurant and everything's copacetic. There's a great, I think it's when Angel accuses him of, or asks if he set up the, the hit where, where, I don't know if this is exactly, but there's this moment where he goes, what do you think I am anyway? Mm-hmm. And Angel's just like, well, I don't want to get into that right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Striker also says, you know, you want us to leave the money before you, you right. know, give us the girl? And Angel says, supply and demand. That's how these things work. Mm-hmm. Um, then he hangs up and uh, says that Striker bought it. And Jim says, all right, they'll make the drop and then try to kill us when we make the pickup. <laughs> um, all right. So that's all great. So this specific 
con of killing someone in order to convince the mark that everything is real i cannot i'd have to go find my book which i don't know where it is this is a specific con that's talked about in uh (laughs) the the big con book that we've talked about before and it's not the blow off uh because that's a more general term so if you remember what this is now you're you're yelling at your podcast device but yeah uh I just love how it's it's employed here really well and in kind of a fun way. Uh, this is also featured in the Sting. It's yeah, and it's it's like you you had just described afterwards the sort of bonding experience that like so it's a good setup for a good con. Um, but part of the craft of this episode, and I think why it comes together so well, is that this is again this is the third time that Jim is attempting pretty much the exact same thing, just <laughs> right. three different ways. And so, like, we don't have to... Some of the groundwork for all of what's happening has already been laid, so we're like, okay, okay, now they're doing now they're doing this way. Uh, but then the other thing is that it plays into the antagonism that has existed between Jim and Joey right. that kind of goes in and out throughout the whole thing. And, like, it, like, it runs that motif. It, it mirrors when Paulette was like, why don't you kill each other already? Mm-hmm. Like, that's the answer. And, like, that's in the scene where Jim puts together the pieces for this con, right? Like, so it's mm-hmm. really tightly wound in, in kind of a nice way here. Yeah. Yeah, I, I thought it was really well done. Yeah, it's really good. The I guess the the thing that I wanted to tease out was that like this move, like the way that it that it was used most often in those classic cons was mm-hmm. you'd get the mark, like you would set things up such that the mark thought that they were responsible for the death. Oh yeah. It depends on the circumstances, but like you give them a gun and it's going to be like, and, and it's set up such that they think that it's not loaded or something, but then like it is or, oh, or, yeah, yeah. or, or they, you know, or someone runs away from them and then gets like shot in an alley by someone else, but they're the first one on the scene or something like that. Yeah. So that then they're implicated in like a more serious crime than the fraud that they're being defrauded by through the, through the con. So they're never going to take it to the police because then they're going to be implicated right in a more serious crime, which is fake. The murder is fake. Um, so using it here is, uh, I don't know. It's, it's a fun twist. Cause it's like, it, it's raising the stakes for the mark so that the mark finally buys into the false reality. Right. Which is, uh, yeah, it is well done. Well constructed as you say. Uh, all right. So we get into our finale sequence here where, this is the plan. They're going to make the drop and then wait for them to pick it up. Um, Ganon gives Stryker a gun. Ed doesn't want violence, but it's too late for that. Stryker mm-hmm. says they have to give them a show of force. You don't understand how these people work. Um, so this is a nice scene because it's kind of like, these guys aren't mob. They're not. I mean, Ganon probably has killed people, I think is the implication. <laughs> but <you> know, <laughs> they're not organized crime. They're not career criminals. They're just bad people who are in a circumstance where they're like, yeah, this is worth killing over. Yeah, yeah. Um, just. But I think that's an important nuance. Uh, and then Ed's kind of the voice of reason and Stryker's like, 
too late for that. Uh, they managed to generate the $250,000 in cash by raiding the employee tax reserve. Yeah. It needs to be back by Monday. So digging themselves in deeper if this doesn't go well for them. I like the business where the bank is like, I need to be here when you count it so you can fill out this receipt. And he just opens it up and he's like, yeah, it's $250,000. Yeah, he's feeling the time pressure. Yeah, yeah. He's like, yeah, that, that looks like 250000 that's good. Yeah. And then and then Fred goes to count it and he's like, don't bother with that. We don't have time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So we are now staking out the litter box or trash can, if you will, in mm-hmm. the park. Uh, we watch Fred nervously drop in this suitcase full of money. We then cut to the Firebird rolling up. Um, I think it is shot such that it feels like they're in a different location. They're not right. At yeah. the, the front of the park with everyone. There's a comment about that, too. It's like, I can't remember exactly what it was, but there's something about how do you get there from here or something like that. Yeah, they roll up and I think uh, uh, Paulette says like, oh, it's awfully far. And Jim says it's the most direct route. Yeah. We then have a, a nice little sequence where, you know, there's a little bit of tension. Nothing seems to be happening. And then a guy comes stumbling into the into the scene. <laughs> he is, as I say later, a wino. He sees the trash can and goes over to to rummage, looking for empties. Gannon's like, I don't think this is it. And Stryker just can't can't stand the tension, I think, yeah. is, is how I read this. this. And he's like, no, let's go. This is it. So they rough up this guy. He doesn't know anything. Um, Fred comes back. And he's like, we just got a call. They dropped off the girl. And Stryker <laughs> doesn't get it. They never picked up the money. And yeah. he goes and he, and he kicks the can in frustration and it falls over and it was over an open manhole cover. <laughs> <laughs> he stood there with waiting arms. Don't you understand? You threw our money down the sewer. Come on, let's go. <laughs> and we cut to the restaurant where everyone is celebrating. Yay. Yay. Um, Beth is there. Uh, she asks where the money came from. Like, Joey starts telling the actual story and then jim's like right we convinced striker to make a donation to joey you conned him uh yeah kind of <laughs> yeah somebody was like we set up striker with a kidnapping and sold him with a phony murder <laughs> it was just like all right uh striker and his goons come in uh they are clearly confused as jim is there not or yeah. like i saw him shoot you they're like, we don't know what you're talking about. Beth has a check and a signed option for them to sign uh, as they have the, you know, the, the check for $250,000 to pay off the option. And I think you said earlier she lays out some legalese. I believe this is where she hits some. Oh, yeah. We have drawn up a check for $250,000 and this is the signed option. If you will initial the places I have checked and endorse this notarization, I think that will conclude our transaction. Except we'll need all of the accounting records and tax files, please. You think I'm going to sign over this place? You're crazy. We don't have any choice, Bert. Unless you'd like us to sue you for your entire net worth. Yeah. Stryker snatches the check. They leave in a huff. Joey tells Jim that he has style. Uh, Paulette wants a, wants a victory dance, so she goes and has and, and dances with Joey. Uh, while Beth leans over to Jim, says, "Yeah, he's got style, but he still need a shower." <laughs> and they they share a kiss as Angel grabs a drink in the background. <laughs> <laughs> that was my last note too. Freeze frame on the kiss as Angel helps himself to a free drink. Mm. Um, this, this last scene has this great line. I'm not through with you, you know. Hey, Slick, maybe I'm not through with you. Do you ever think of that? 
<laughs> which is another thing that keeps showing up in this episode, which is like, yeah, Joey's some, someone to be afraid of. Yeah. Why are these people antagonizing him? him? Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. It's great. Good ending. Feels good. Solid, solid episode. Um, yeah. So I guess the blueprint thing was to like, so they had a blueprint of like the sewers under the park, I guess. Yeah. They knew, they knew where to get in so they could get to that particular yeah, manual cover and put a can over it or whatever. Which, again, I feel like I didn't... I'm not... I don't know. I'm not hung up on this. It's just because we were talking about it. I'm like, yeah, I don't know if I needed that explanation. Like, it seemed fairly straightforward yeah. that Jim... Between Jim and Angel, they could figure out how to get into a sewer. If they were going that far, they maybe could have explained the mechanics of how they presented it as a litter box that somebody would put something in and that a wino would then come to later and dig through while still being able to remove. Like, I don't understand how the, the suitcase went in and got removed from mm -hmm. the bottom, but there was still trash enough in there <laughs> for this guy to dig through. Well, maybe uh, but whatever. putting his arms in, trying to find bottles and there's just nothing yeah, in could there. Yeah, it could be. I don't think it needs to be overthought. Like, yeah. it's fine that that's there. It was, I was just like, again, because I completely forgotten about that scene. Ah, that's why that's there. Um, anyhow, yeah, great episode. I really liked this one. This one really, really yeah. felt solid to me. If if we had to end season two on this one, that would have been... Right, right. Two thumbs up. That would have <laughs> been perfect. Uh, but as it turns out, we still have one left. We do still have one left. Um... I think I mentioned at the beginning, there's a bit of a headcanon one could have here, which is that Burt Stryker, disgraced businessman, right. <laughs> loses his company as a result of all of these shenanigans, decides to change careers, changes his name, <laughs> rises through the ranks of the LA, of LAPD quickly right. due to his pre-existing contacts and everything. And then we have Lieutenant Chapman, who then he and Jim just pretend like his previous life never happened because it's to yes. either of their advantage to bring it up. However, no wonder Chapman yeah. does not like Jim Rockford. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder, like, do you know, do you have the inside um, gossip on this? They just enjoyed him, so they decided to bring him on as the yeah, Chapman? Yeah, I think or? so. I mean, there isn't really a comment on it in this episode right up um, other than just he would join the cast in the third season. Because that is uh, in in the British 80s television show, Robin of Sherwood. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, the first episode they had, uh, it was the first episode, I think, was a two-parter. And in it, there was this, I don't remember the name, a count or a duke that was worshiping the devil and had in his employ a Saracen that Robin had to fight at some point. And they just happened to like the actor so much. <laughs> That by the time they got done with the second episode, they wrote a scene where the Saracen just shows up and joins the 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 Merrymen, right? Like joins mm -hmm. the Robin's gang. Like I mean, like that. I know that happens with television shows, but it's like that was one where they made the character himself canon and not just brought the character the actor back to do something different. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and it changed Robin Hood canon forever. Uh, that's why Morgan Freeman was in Prince of Thieves. It's why. Uh, a lot of people think that that's a um, like a, a long-standing tradition of of uh, that character in Robin's stories, but that it begins there in the early '80s, shortly after the Rockford Files. <laughs> based on uh, based on this episode's performance, I would hire him again. 
Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, I was anticipating having to counter my mental picture of Chapman in order to like, like right, right. you know, in order to kind of get into this particular episode. But it wasn't that hard at all. It wasn't hard at all. Yeah, he's he's. I mean, he's obviously a completely different character, but he's also like, I guess Chapman is played with such like not. It's not that he's played with incompetence, but he's kind of played in a manner where he's always trying to do something that's not quite in his grasp right. for one reason or another. While this this character Striker is like supremely confident, everything he's doing is something he is you know feels is is, is possible, and no one is ever telling him. You know, he doesn't have any pressures on him from the people he's interacting with day to day. He has this right. larger pressure on him, but, um, you know, he's kind of like the king of his own little little kingdom um, in the situation he set up for himself, even though it's crumbling around him in a larger sense. While Chapman is kind of like detritus on 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 a, on a quickly moving river of right. <laughs> everything that's happening in the police department. Um, and he's just getting kind of banged around all the time. Um, so it's not even cause he still like has kind of a similar line delivery, like the way that he speaks yeah. and everything isn't particularly different, but just, yeah, the context for the character is so different. I had, I had no, at no point was I like, stop thinking about Chapman. This is a different character. Like I didn't have to do that a single time. Only during the opening montage. Sure. Right? Sure. Sure. Where we see that he's in it and I'm like, oh, right. This is the one where he's not Chapman. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, definitely a good one. Got, I feel it's got a good con. It's got mm-hmm. great uh, Jim Beth, their whole deal. Mm-hmm. It's got uh, some great angel moments. It's got a wonderful uh, chase scene in the middle. It's got uh, great dialogue. Just solid. Solid all the way through. And yeah, and just a really deft handling of here's something that's kind of important either for backstory or to like get things going. Yeah. But it's not going to be important later. So we can just kind of move, you know, so those characters just kind of move off screen. And right. as I said earlier, they're not loose ends. They're just not part of the, the story moving forward. And so it feels like a very coherent narrative, even though there's a lot of characters overall. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot going on. There's some, um, there's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. There's several interested parties, but as, as they are checked off the list, they disappear and that's good. And I think this is the thing that, that was, that was a a really strong takeaway for me that I wanted to make sure I got in here was that this is an episode that doesn't actually have any murders in it other than a fake murder. Yes. I, I was thinking the same thing. Yeah. And it's really satisfying. There's some real, really, really hateful villains and there is some some you know slightly gendered violence. violence, but again, I feel like we talked last time about how like sometimes it feels like there's murders and they're kind of part of the plot mechanic. Right. You don't really think about them as having impact on the characters, and that was in the context of in Where's Houston exploring how it had an impact yes. on some characters. And then I just felt like this was such a refreshing, uh, just a refreshing story because it didn't have murder in it, but it still felt important, menacing. There's still danger. But yeah, it was just like a great example of like your dramatic show doesn't have to have murders in it to have stakes that matter. Exactly. Yeah. And I would agree with that. Jim gets paid as far as we know. Yes. It seems the, the, uh, I mean, the guy now owns a multi-million dollar franchise. Yeah. If he, if he doesn't pay Jim, then I kind of want to know how we w- wiggled out of that one. <laughs> <laughs> you, you feel like, you feel like in this case, Beth would actually make sure to, uh, 
yeah to make that happen if need be yeah so good episode indeed um all right well i know i said this last time but uh <laughs> join us next time for the last episode of the rockford files <laughs> from season two that we will be addressing on this show, unless I yet again have miscounted the episodes, <laughs> in which case we will discover that between now and our next recording. Yes. <laughs> My thoughts exactly. Wah, <laughs> <laughs>